1: Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Uh, today I'm going to look at Harold Yana's, uh new book, Aftermath, Life in the Fallout of the Third Reich, 1945-55. to 55. Um, uh, One thing that draws me to looking at um, post-war situations, the um, kind of... Strange return to some kind of quasi-normality in uh, countries like Germany after the Second World War is because the, the drama of the war sometimes uh, kind of obscures the, the kind of the really interesting kind of politics of the everyday uh, that kind of emerge in, in some weird way when the fighting has stopped. And this is a really really good book. Uh, I'd urge you to go and get it. Um, and it's a really a um, kind of fascinating exploration. We normally, when we talk about post-war Germany, um, the the focus is on things like the Berlin airlift and you know the, Berl- the erection of the Berlin Wall in 1961 and things like that. But it, there's so much more to it. That how how a society that had waged this kind of um, war against the rest of the world and which had been defeated, how it comes to how it kind of exists in the present, accepts the past, or, or doesn't. Um, these are really fascinating questions and tells a lot about people. Anyway, so in the second chapter is all about the, the clearance of ruins in Germany. Um, and so, Harold Jana writes, The war had left about 500 million cubic metres of rubble behind. To help people visualise the amount, they undertook all kinds of calculations. The Dienburger nachrichten... Um took up the Zeppelin field at the Reich party rally grounds as its benchmark, piled in that space three hundred meters by three hundred, the rubble would have produced a mountain four thousand meters high, topped with perpetual snow. Uh, others imagined the Berlin ruins calculated as having a volume of fifty five million cubic meters um, as a wall thirty meters wide and five meters high and stretching westwards all the way to Cologne. There were all sorts of notions used to help people grasp the enormous quantities of debris that needed to be cleared away. No one who stood in cities such as Dresden, Berlin, Hamburg, Kiel, Duisburg, or Frankfurt, whole districts of which had been completely destroyed, could possibly have imagined how the detritus could ever be removed, let alone the cities reconstructed. There were 40 cubic metres of rubble for each surviving resident of Dresden. Of course the rubble didn't appear in such compact form. The wreckage spread in city-wide expanses in the form of fragile and precarious ruins. Anyone who had lived uh, amidst them, often with only three or four walls remaining and the open roof to the sky, first had to crawl through high piles of rubble and risk venturing through the freestanding remains of walls to get home. Individual walls were often the height of the facade. Without supporting side walls, they threatened to collapse at any moment. Masonry swayed overhead in, uh, on twisted iron girders and whole concrete floors protruded from single wall uh, from a single wall, while children played below. So that was what the, the 12-year Reich, as we really, I suppose should call it, uh, ended up looking like. Uh, It's always interesting when there are these kind of conversations that happen uh, from time to time of um, people who are not necessarily Nazi sympathisers themselves, but say things like, well, you know, whilst I disapprove of Hitler's methods, well, he got that country working again. You know, people with that kind of authoritarian tendency within them, which we all have a little bit of. Well, it's always important to remember you know the the what Germany looked like um, by the summer of 1945, and this is a, a really kind of visual reminder. There was, in fact, writes Harold Jana, um, every reason to despair. But most Germans couldn't uh, couldn't afford even a brief moment of despondency. On the 23rd of April 1945, before the war was even officially over, the municipal bulletin for the southwestern city of Mannerheim already published. In its proclamation, its proclamation, we are rebuilding. We can only do this quite modestly for the time being because mountains and rubble need to be removed before we can locate land to build on. The best thing to do is to start removing the rubble and, as the old saying goes, to start outside your own front door. We will manage. It will be hard when someone lucky enough to have or, uh, to have come home stands outside his shattered dwelling, which he would once more like to make his home. In that case, much hammering and carpentry will need to be done using skills acquired over many years before the place is habitable again. Self-help is only possible when one has access to roofing, felt and tiles. If as many people as possible are to be helped as quickly as possible, anyone who still has roofing material left over from previous work will have to deposit these at the appropriate district construction office forthwith. In this way, we want to rebuild very modestly at first, step by step, so that windows and roofs are closed up again, and there will, uh, and then we will see what happens next. So, a, a very kind of um, rudimentary um, a, a approach from a uh, if a, a government, a city government that uh, has obviously uh, been kind of denazified by occupying forces very quickly. Um, and was trying to do whatever it could do uh, not waiting for um, occupying powers to um, kind of instruct it but doing whatever it could do to address basic civilian needs. But in, in a, a, using the kind of language that indicates that um, the problems are I- enormous and the answers are not, not, not really present as of yet. Huge quantities of British bombs had rained down on on Mannheim, destroying half the city's houses, but thanks to an effective system of basement air raid shelters, only 0.5% of the population had perished. This may explain the strange glee with which hammering and carpentry are are depicted, almost as an idyllic bout of DIY. But in other cities, too, people set about clearing things up with an enthusiasm that might have appeared macabre to outsiders. Erstmal weiter Grund Rheinbringen first establish your foundations was the motto literally the phrase meant find a piece of land surprisingly quickly an initial order was created amidst the chaos of the ruins narrow passages were cleared where people could make their way through the rubble in the collapsed cities a new topography of beaten paths came into being cleared oases appeared in the deserts of rubble in some places, um, people had cleaned the streets so conscientiously that cobblestones gleamed as if they were brand new while other other pavements uh, p- uh, pavements pieces of rubble were stacked on top of one another meticulously, meticulously sorted by size in Freiburg in Baden, Southwest Germany, which was always, always had a reputation for being spick and span um, Freiburg City is nice and clean and pretty as the nineteenth century author Johann Peter Hebel. Um, had it, the loose rubble was piled so carefully at the feet of uh, uh, of the ruins that the apocalyptic setting almost started to look habitable again. So it, it seems almost as um, as if there was some kind of uh, very emotional displacement activity um, happening here. Um, many uh, many germ for many Germans for whom things like the Holocaust were an open secret they could know if they wished to, but many most Germans wished not to know. Um, and the um, question of uh, German guilt and German aggression and uh, German culpability, these things, uh, whilst you can't can't deal with any of these things, at the very least you can start to address the physical environment uh, around you and, and put energies into trying to kind of restore something from the chaos. A photograph taken by Werner Bischoff in 1945 shows a man walking alone through this cleanly swept hell. He's wearing his Sunday best. We see him from behind, a black hat pushed back onto the back of his neck. His jodhpurs stuffed into his knee-high boots, for which a combination, uh, which in combination with his elegant jacket gives him the appearance of a cavalry captain. He's carrying a wicker basket in his hand, as if he's strolling to the shops, which earned the picture the unofficial title Man in search of something edible. His gait is practically imprudent. His posture suggests optimism and resolve and together with the attentively upward-looking angle of his head, curiously taking in the surrounding area, gives a poignant sense of someone who has ended up in the wrong film. The Germans had a lot of time to get used to to the devastation. Since the first bombing raids in 1940, they'd been forced to clear their cities after repeated attacks and patch them up as best they could. Uh, But then they had masses of POWs and forced labourers at their disposal. Uh, whom they deployed for the hard labour under inhuman conditions. In the last months of the war, no one counted precisely how many had died in the process, but after the end of the war, Germans had to do that work themselves for the first time. Of course, the um, British and uh, American Air Forces were tooled correctly for the job of mass civilian bombing in a way that the German Air Force wasn't. So
0: From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Many of us have those stubborn
0: pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work
1: out. a, uh, a the result of, of a clearly thought out set of policies um, in uh, Britain and America um, to um, devastate uh, civilian uh, civilian areas and industrial areas of, of of German cities. What better solution, writes Harold Jana, than to enlist the very people who had instigated the disaster in the first place? In the first weeks after the war, the so-called party member deployments were organized. Former Nazi party members were pressed to work to help remove rubble. In Duisburg in early May, posters announced that ex-party members were ordered to clear away street obstacles. They must be removed immediately by party members, friends and sponsors of the Nazi clique. Those summoned to comply must provide their own suitable tools. The summons was accompanied by a threat. If you fail to appear, freed political prisoners will make sure that you do. These enlistment orders had not been issued by the British military occupying authority, nor by the mayor of Duisburg, but the signatory was a Reconstruction Action Committee, a front for a so-called anti-fascist committee, a coalition of anti-Nazis, who wanted to take denazification and reconstruction into their own hands in a non-bureaucratic way. Um, And and you can read into taking things into your own hands in a non-bureaucratic way what, what you like there, really. Unlike in many cities where the anti-fascist committees initially worked in collaboration with the city administrations, the mayor of Duisburg saw the punitive action by the Citizens Committee as an illegitimate assumption of power. He tried to cancel the Labour deployments with posters of his own. But was thwarted by the, by the confusion of events, the self-appointed Reconstruction Action Committee actually managed to conscript a considerable number of former Nazi Party members for their repeated Sunday forced Labour campaigns. While such punishments imposed by citizens' committees on former Nazi party members might not have been the rule, the example of Driesburg showed that Germans were quite capable of taking matters of justice and retribution into their own hands and were not the stubborn and homogenous mass of some later accounts. But more importantly, the process was typical of the administrative chaos of the first post-war months. As soon as they conquered a region, the Allies automatically removed the existing mayors from office and quickly appointed new ones in order to maintain a minimum of order. Ideally, they tried to find people who had occupied the post prior to 1933 or brought in former Social Democrats. Sometimes German citizens volunteered for a great variety of reasons. Some of them idealistic. By the way, this, this refer when you're talking about bringing in former social democrats. This refers to the Western Allied zones. That's not what the Soviets did. Um, often these individuals only remained in post for a few days before objections were raised, and by the recently constituted officers dealing with denazification. Of course, when um, new appointees were uh, given um, a chance by the Allied forces, very often uh, damning evidence would come to light about their involvement in in the regime or all sorts of kind of allegations uh, would would emerge because very few uh, people in public life Managed, who, who didn't wind up in a concentration camp, managed to emerge from Nazism in, in any way uncompromised or untainted uh, by the regime. In Frankfurt, the journalist Wilhelm Holbach um, held the job of mayor for a comparatively long time, 99 days. He had reached the top of the city administration by pure chance. Immediately after Germany's capitulation, he called on American headquarters in the city to request permission to found a newspaper. The sooner the better, he had thought. Holbach was not granted that authorization, but fortunately for the city of Frankfurt, the military instead offered him the city's highest office. They'd been racking their brains trying to think of somebody for the role when Holbach had burst in. As soon as he was in, in office, he carefully laid the basis for a rubble recycling corporation which, though it was started relatively late, was all the more efficient for it. The writer, Hans Falader, famed for his novels such as Alone in Berlin and Little Man What Now, who was fast-tracking into the mayoral office in the small lakeside town of Feldberg in the northern state of Mecklenburg, was not so lucky. Initially, the Russians had wanted to lock him up or even shoot him, because someone had discarded an SS uniform in his garden. Under questioning, he somehow seemed like exactly the right sort of person to get the village's businesses running. So, at a moment's notice, the notorious drinker and morphine addict, Falada, found himself responsible for resolving disputes between farmers, villagers and occupiers. In most cases, this involved the confiscation of provisions and the organisation of work details. After four months, he collapsed under the burden of these thankless tasks and was put in hosp- hospital in Neustrelitz. Uh, and particularly since his underlings had, the, um, had in the meantime looted his house, never went back to Feldberg. So those little vignettes give you a, a sense of the kind of the fluidity, uh, the, the, the rapid movements uh, of, of events um, as... Um, occupying armies seized parts of germany dismantled uh, the nazi regime that was there in the most kind of rudimentary and, and, and abrupt of ways um, tried to install something either you know liberal democratic in the western zones or soviet communist in in, in the east uh, and they yeah, it all works on a certain level of kind of ongoing chaos and anarchy Of people like falada being selected just simply because there's nobody else um and um kind of a a sort of uh a free-moving chaos uh, happening as a result and the fact that there isn't um more chaos um and and indeed violence though germany in 1945 even at the uh, at the end of the war is a violent place for a um, f- for a long period of time. Um, it takes a-, a year or two, particularly in the West, for occupying forces to uh, manage to bring genuine law and order to uh, German towns and cities. Uh, but that's something we'll look at later on in this excellent book. So I do recommend it, Aftermath by Harold Jana. Get yourself a copy. Um, And later today I'll be doing an update um, talking about Ireland. Um, For those who are not keen followers of UK and Irish politics, something unprecedented has happened in Northern Ireland. Uh, A Irish nationalist party, something that Northern Ireland was created to prevent ever getting to power has uh, swept local elections and um, uh, assembly elections in, in Northern Ireland and will be forming a government instalment. And uh, uh, Northern Ireland, that is 101 years old this year, um, is about to go through a series of extraordinary and possibly quite uh, terrifying transitions. Um, but more on that later on. Anyway, thanks very much, and catch us uh, on the next Explaining History podcast. Uh, You can find me at www.explaininghistory.org and at the Explaining History Facebook group, and I'll catch you soon. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. One that's mirrored in the uh, huge problems uh, in the US healthcare sector and the difficulty that uh, the seemingly intractable... Um, a problem of uh, attempts to uh, create uh, a free at the point of use healthcare service, which um, uh, most of the modern countries, in some way, shape, or form, eh, enjoy. Um, the implications for the, the rest of the world, as I said, are are, are stark. Um, the uh, the orga- organizations and uh, wealthy backers who have uh, managed to overturn roe versus Wade um will now be immensely emboldened. perhaps they won't succeed in in Europe, but they will try you know of that of that you must be absolutely certain um and wherever you are if you're not in the u s watch the media that you consume and look for the messages that will no doubt be kind of uh Dropped into newspaper columns and and leaders and here and uh, and in uh, op eds in TV on TV shows and radio and podcasts, because there there will be an attempt to make the argument first for um, the curbing and reduction of abortion rights and then perhaps an an outright ban um, similar to Roe versus Wade. Um, these things often tend, tend to fire, um, and also, this might be a, a huge and important moment for um, the uh, women's movement uh, inside America uh, and and beyond. Um, it's difficult to say at the moment. There has been um, doesn't seem to have been the kind of spontaneous mass organizing that happened. When Trump was uh, first elected in uh, 2016, but give it time, give it time. Uh, it's only been a, a day or two, and, and no doubt there is a, a flurry of activity uh, amongst the uh, women's movements in America um, to organise some form of uh, some form of resistance. Um, OK, well, listen, I'm going to leave the update there and we're going to be coming back to that hopefully later in the week. Apologies, I've done fewer updates this week because, again, I've been suffering from long COVID and it's, it's been kind of tiring. But, you know, I'll get over that. Thanks very much, everybody. I hope you find this useful and we'll be getting back to some regular history in a moment. All the best. Thanks. Bye bye.